the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Our Bible study tonight from Psalm 104. This psalm has no title in the Hebrew version, but it is attributed to David by the Septuagint translation. The occasion on which the psalm is written, we don't know. Some commentator who do not believe that David is the author of the psalm, they suggest that it was written at the time of the return from the Babylonian exile, and that it was intended to be used as the rededication of the temple. As you know, when they were in the exile, the temple was destroyed. So they rebuilt the temple, and some people say this psalm was intended to be used at the rededication of the temple. But it has no special applicability to such a service. So this opinion is not supported. But this psalm seems as a continuation of Psalm 103, but with different focus. Psalm 103 praises God for his redemptive work and how his mercy is exhibited in his recent deliverance of Israel. But Psalm 104 praises God for his creation, for his work in creation, for his creative work. It is a contemplation of his power, his wisdom, his goodness that's manifested in the creation. God not only created the universe, but dwells in the universe and sustains the universe. The world depends absolutely upon his will for the continuance of its existence. So when God actually sees in his economy, this will be the end of life on earth and the beginning of eternal life, that is when actually the heaven and the earth will pass away. It is God who gives to all life, breath, and all things, as St. Paul said in Acts 17, verse 25. Both Psalms 103 and 104 begin and end with the same call to praise God. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Some have considered Psalm 104 a sort of illustration of the history of the creation as given in the book of Genesis. In the first 23 verses of this psalm, the psalmist includes many elements from the Genesis creation story. For example, he mentioned the light in verse 2, the heavens in verse 3, 
went in verse 3 and 4, the deep in verse 6, water covering mountains and then receding verse 6 to 9, vegetation verse 14 to 16, birds verse 17, animals verse 18, sun and moon 19 to 22, and the man verse 23. So what's the difference between the story of creation in Genesis 1 and here in Psalm 104? While the book of Genesis tells us what God created, the psalmist in Psalm 104 concentrates on the way and the cause of creation. Why God created us and how he created us. He talks about the intimate relationship between the Creator and the world and concentrates more upon the Creator than the creation and proclaims God the compassionate more than God the mighty one. So this psalm reveals to us the compassion of God and his intimate relationship with his creation. So the main subject of the psalm is the order of the world and the sovereignty of God who created the world and maintains the world. It is considered as a song dedicated to God, dedicated to the Son of God, the Logos of God, the Word of God. He is the Creator, the caretaker of the creation and our Savior. The whole Son is in honor of our Lord Savior Jesus Christ, who is the Creator, the Ruler, and also the Redeemer of the world. Christ is the Son of God, and He is the Divine Hypostasis addressed and described throughout this psalm, as appears from the quotation of Psalm 104 verse 5. Saint Paul actually took this verse and he mentioned in Hebrew chapter 1 verse 7 and applied it to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Jewish people used to sing this psalm on the morning of Yom Kippur, the great day of atonement in which the high priest is allowed to go beyond the veil and enter into the Holy of the Holies. And this happens once a year. Also, this psalm teaches us confession, how to confess the glory of God and prayer. It is 35 verses. Verse 1 to 9, God the creator of heaven and earth. Verse 10 to 23, his divine care. Verse 24 to 26, the wonder of the sea God created. 27 to 30, God's sovereign power over all the creatures. 31 to 32, blessing the God of all creation. 33 to 35, a determination to praise God. Let's start from verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty. 
he start by saying bless the Lord O my soul this verse actually was repeated three times in Psalm 103 it is a call to worship God in spirit and truth so the person here is calling his spirit to participate in worshiping God so the worship will not be by our mouth only but by our soul by our spirit to do this worship from one's inmost being the psalmist worshiped God as his own my God after he said bless the Lord O my soul he said he said O Lord my God O Lord my God so you can see here the intimate relationship this God is his God but also he is the great one who is clothed with honor and majesty but let us ask a question was God at any time not great definitely not is God is only great through our praises definitely not because what can be added to him nothing he is the incomprehensible he is the full of all might it is not God's eternal and absolute greatness which the psalmist celebrate but the revelation of his greatness God is great even before the creation God eternally is great and his greatness is absolute so the psalmist here is not celebrating the absolute and eternal greatness of God but he is celebrating the manifestation the revelation of this greatness to us the works of God which are the subject of this psalm show the honor and the majesty of God so God is honored in himself his majesty is eternal but it is revealed to us through his creation so the beautiful description of creation explains why the psalmist believe God is great as God in his own nature and perfection is great so also in the glory of his works this greatness is manifested God is seen in his works and these proclaim him infinitely proclaim his wisdom and his goodness and all that is great God is surrounded and adorned with honor and majesty as he said you are clothed with honor and majesty as if he is surrounded with honor and majesty when did God lack honor and majesty not at any time because it is he who bestows all beautiful things upon his creatures so never God was without honor or majesty but till he created the world he was unknown but then by making beautiful things whereby he could be known 
and priest. And he became better known, more truly magnified by the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, who cover yourself with light as with a garment, who stretch out the heavens like a curtain. God covers himself with light, but as we know, light is the first created element. But before the creation of light, God himself is light. But when he created the light, it became like God's robe. So the psalmist does not think of the formation of light as of a single past act. He formed light in the first day, but as a continued glorious operation of the divine power. So every time we see the light, we remember the divine power, how he created light to enlighten the earth here. And as I told you, even before the creation of light, God is light in himself. Light is expressive of the nature of God himself. As we read in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Also in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 16, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. Sometimes people, when they pray, they like to dim the light. And they say, when we dim the light, this actually makes us more spiritual. But His Holiness Pope Shenouda, with a blessed memory, he was against this idea completely and said, if God is light and dwells in light and dwells in unapproachable light, how can, when actually we pray, we dim the light or turn the light off? The, the Discalia says that the church should have a lot of light to represent the heaven and God who is dwelling in an approachable light. He is covered with light. He may well be said to be covered or hid from the eyes of mortal men in the light. So we may understand this idea of light as garment when we reflect on the transfiguration, when the Lord appeared on the Mount Tabor, and as we read in Matthew 17, verse 2, his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Then he said, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain. Some see it as an allusion to the curtain of the tabernacle. So the psalmist may well have had in his mind also the curtain of the Holy of the Holies, the veil that separates 
the holy from the holy of the holies this veil that was actually torn on the day of crucifixion so heaven is represented as a tent stretched out with curtain drawn around it why to hide the unapproachable light in which the Lord dwell so the heaven is like a tent and this tent has curtains to hide the unapproachable light in which God dwells some believe Christ our Lord is revealed in these words how because Christ dwells invisible to us at the present time we cannot see Christ with our eyes after he ascended into heaven we cannot see him with our eyes but in the second coming he will descend from heaven in the time being as if Christ is within the curtains of heaven unseen by us verse 3 he lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters who makes the clouds his chariot who walks on the wings of the wind so here he speaks about three things number one as if God is dwelling in upper chamber and this upper chamber has beams and these beams in the water that's number one number two who makes the cloud his chariot when he moves he uses a cloud that's his chariot and also when he walks he walks on the wings of the wind so the creator is described as laying the beams of his upper chambers in the waters God builds for himself an upper chamber as a dwelling place in the waters which were above the firmament you know in Genesis chapter 2 he said there was a water and God created the firmament firmament is the space between the clouds above and the sea and oceans below so that is the firmament this is the firmament and the firmament separate between the clouds above and the waters of the seas and the ocean as if God is building an upper chamber a dwelling place in the water above the clouds as man builds himself an upper chambers with beams and joints the chamber built above the first story of a house for purpose of privacy and seclusion when we have second story in our houses for privacy and seclusion but the second story is connected with the first story which means God is involved with us he is not separate with us he built a chamber above the waters but in the same way he is separate from us so he is involved with us but separate means he is invisible to us in the time being also church fathers remind us 
of how an upper chamber was the scene of the institution of the Holy Eucharist and also where the Holy Spirit descended upon the disciples like tongues of fire. God does not share the limitations of the creation. He makes the clouds his chariot and he walks on the wings of the wind. In such clouds, the Lord actually came to battle against the Egyptians and to defend the Israelites. In such clouds, he descended to give the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. Because the clouds were above them when they crossed the Red Sea and also when appeared to Moses, he appeared in clouds. So as if God actually makes the cloud his chariot. Also when he ascended 40 days after his resurrection in the presence of the apostles, a cloud received him out of their sight. Then he said, who walks on the wings of the wind? Meaning what? Meaning as fast as the wind. It is expressive of his haste in coming to help us and to assist us in the time of need. Also, it can be applied to the first coming and the second coming of Christ. Walks on, in the wings of the wind. Because in Song of Solomon chapter 2 verse 8, which is reference to the first coming, who came leaping upon the mountains and skipping up upon the hills. So he came with haste to redeem us. But the second coming, we read in Song of Solomon chapter 2 verse 17, as a young stag upon the mountain. Also, some commentators think it is the speed and pace with which the preaching of the gospel was communicated to the world from its starting point at Jerusalem. So the wings of the wind, how the word of God was preached to the whole world. St. Augustine has beautiful reflection about he built his chamber upon the waters he said the upper parts of what of heaven what's heaven figuratively only we said heaven is a divine scripture is the bible so what is the upper part of the scripture it is the commandment of love that is the peak of all commandments where there is none more exalted but wherefore is love compared to water? How he compared love to waters? Because he said he built his upper chamber in water. Because love of God is shed abroad in our heart by the Holy Spirit who is given unto us. And the Holy Spirit, many times the metaphor or the symbol of the Holy Spirit are the waters, the living waters. Then. The psalmist said, who walks above the wings of the wind, St. Augustine continued. So, what are the wings of the winds? According to St. Augustine, these are the virtues of the soul. 
But what is the virtue of the soul? What is the best virtue of the soul? For us, it is love. So here, God is dwelling in love, but also is walking above love. How can we understand this? How does he walk above love? St. Augustine answered, because the love of God toward us is greater than our love toward God. Verse 4, verse 4 is quoted in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. Who makes his angels his spirits, his ministers a flame of fire. God also rules over the angels, equipping, commissioning them as it pleases him. Angels are spirits yet created ones. According to St. Gregory the Theologian, angels are spirits but without bodies. They are different from the spirits of men because they are immaterial and they don't die. They are made by God, by whom or by Christ, the Son of God, by whom all things are made. But Christ, since he is the creator of the angel, then he must be greater than the angels. That's why St. Paul in Hebrews chapter 1, when he tried to say that Christ is greater than the angels, he quoted verse 4 in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 7. Some said this verse who makes his angels spirit meaning at the winds, to which they may be compared for their invisibility, we don't see the angels, and also their haste. Also, he said about his ministers, a flame of fire. The angels are the ministers of God, stand before him, wait for his orders and execute them. God gives his angelic messengers the speed of winds and also the mighty power of the burning flame. In Ezekiel vision in chapter 1, he saw the angels ran back and forth in appearance like a flash of lightning. Also, this verse, verse 4, may be applied to the apostles who were sent to remove the clouds of heathen darkness. So the heathen, the non-believers, were living in cloud of darkness. And the angels, these are flames of fire, went to the heathens to remove the darkness and to kindle and enlighten the souls with the gospel, that fire which their master came to send on the earth. As the Lord said, I will send fire on earth. And that's why the Holy Spirit descended upon them on the day of Pentecost like divided tongues of fire. St. Augustine comments on this verse, his ministers a flame of fire and says, for unless the minister that preaches be on fire, he inflames not him to whom he preaches. So we, the, the preachers, if we are not in fire, we cannot inflame the people to whom we are preaching. 
St. Basil the Great said, The powers of heaven or his angels are not holy by nature. Otherwise, there would in this respect be no difference between them and Holy Spirit. But because it is God who made them like winds, who made them like flame of fire. Then starting from verse 5 to verse 9, from 5 to 9, he talks about the formation of the earth and the separation of the land and water, the work of the third day, the separation of land of water as we read it in the third day. Verse 5, you who laid the foundations of the earth so that it should not be moved forever. The psalmist understood that God was the creator of all things and that it was he who laid the foundations of the earth. This did not happen by chance or random events as some people, evolutionists, say. But there is a creator behind all things. So God has hung the earth on nothing, as we read in Job chapter 26, verse 27. Yet because the earth is immovable, fixed and steady, so as if it had been laid upon firmest and most certain foundations. So we know that God hangs the earth on nothing, but because of its immovability, because of its stability, as if the earth has firm and certain foundation. According to some fathers, this verse refers to the creation of the church, or every holy soul of the children of God, who are steadfast, unshaken in faith, because of the firmness of the base of the foundation, on which it stands. As St. Paul said, no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. Verse 6, he says, You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountain. Deep is water. So verse 6 speaks of the separation of the waters at creation. A watery covering was spread at first over the whole earth and wrapped it like a garment. So the earth was covered with water from every part. But some believe verse 6 refers to the flood that came upon the earth in the day of Noah. But according to St. Jerome, this verse, verse 6, refers to the wisdom of God, indescribable and beyond our ability or intellect. As the water covered the earth with a garment, so the, the wisdom of God is incomprehensible, as if it is covered 
unrevealed to us, we cannot understand it. As our eyes cannot fathom the deep ocean, we cannot meditate on God's majesty and wisdom. That's what St. Jerome intended. Then he said, the waters stood above the mountain. Some says that this verse does not refer to the flood, but to the appearance of the earth at the time of creation, before the gathering of the waters into seas and oceans, as we read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 9. So at that stage in work, there was a huge mass of water which lay upon the earth and covered it. And when the waters had covered the earth long enough, God made the waters to recede. And the psalmist described it as God rebuke of the water. So he said, the waters stood above the mountain. So the earth is covered from everywhere with water. But what happened after this? Verse 7, at your rebuke they fled. So the waters started to recede. At the voice of your thunder, they hastened away. Start to recede, so the earth and the mountains start to appear. Rebuke means it required only a few words from God for the whole surface of the earth to be changed. The waters fled, they immediately went to the place which God had appointed to them. But why he did not say ordered? Why he said rebuke? Rebuke suggests as if there was something irregular and disorderly and has to be corrected. As if these waters were not in their proper place. That's why they had to be rebuked to go to their places to form sea and oceans and the surface of earth will appear. So the water shifted their place, removed from some parts of the earth's surface, and gathered themselves together into other parts, allowing the dry land to appear. And God's voice for the waters is described like thunder. Verse 8, they went up over the mountains, they went down into the valleys, to the place which you founded to them. So after they heard the thunder, the voice of God, they hastened away. The water ran off with great speed, just as a servant receiving an order from his master. If God allows for his church to go through affliction, so mighty to cover the high mountain. So the water here can represent the affliction or the persecution that cover even the high mountain. People who are spiritually very, very high. Yet at the voice of your thunder, the waters of this great flood of persecution would retreat and hasten away. Then in verse 8, it's like, Parenthesis, describing the result of this divine, divine command. What happened? Mountain and valleys start to appear because the water start to recede. 
and the water retired to the place appointed for them. When the water went off the earth at the divine orders, navigated their course up the mountain and then went down by the valleys to the place appointed for them. That's why in verse 9 he said, the water went up over the mountains, went down into the valleys to place which you found it for them, to their place. Saint Augustine says, the talk here concerns the waves of persecution. So the waves of persecution may rise up to cover the mountain, cover the mountains. Who are the mountains? People who are spiritually very, very high, like the apostles and the ministers, and then eventually fall down to rise again and to fall down. And it may describe the state of God's people in this world in their journey to their appointed place. Sometimes we have mountains of difficulties to go over, which seem impossible, yet through the grace of God we overcome them and the mountains of difficulties goes down. Also, maybe we have our heart above and upon the mountain of heaven through contemplation, but at other time we are down in the valleys in a low state of spirituality and condition. Then verse 9, you have set a boundary that they may not pass over, that they may not return to cover the earth. Every time you visit a beach and you see how the water stopped, you wonder why the water stopped at this point. There is a huge amount of water in front of you. How the water stopped here? Why? Because you have set a boundary that they may not pass over, that they may not return to cover the earth. It's amazing. Set a boundary. The waters are forbidden to pass over the limits set them. They may not, therefore they don't, turn to cover the earth. In the same way, the Lord has set a boundary to the proud waters of affliction. And as we read in Job 38 verse 11, this far you may come, but not farther. God setting boundaries. Watching the mighty waves of sea, it would seem to the man that nothing could stand before their violence, like the time of Hurricane. But God has set a boundary over which they may not pass. If God allows for the affliction and persecution to stir up and to become mighty waves like high mountain or covering high mountain, which may seem unstoppable for us, we should not fear these high waves of persecution. Why? Because God has set a boundary that they may not pass over them. Verse 10. He sends the springs into the valleys. They flow among the hills. He's still speaking about the water. In, in the first nine verses, 
the psalmist gave glory to God as the powerful protector of this earth, how he separated between land and sea. Now, starting from verse 10, he comes to acknowledge God as the earth benevolent benefactor who cares and provides for all creatures. In verse 10, the reference here is to the earth as covered with vegetation to the third day of the week of creation in which God connected the vegetation with the gathering of the water into the sea. God actually directed the water from the lakes and sea in such a way that they may form springs and valleys. So God directed the water in order to make springs and valleys. He sends the springs into the valleys. Why? For the vegetation to come. They flow among the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. So how God actually is providing for every single creature. The water flow among the hills. The streams of water flow along the natural valleys which have been made for them. God himself is a spring of fountain of the living water and his love is like a river as we read in Psalm 46 verse 4 whose streams shall make glad the city of God. God distributes the waters across the land sending springs into the valleys why in order to give drink to every beast of the field. God's mercy is over all his works. He cares for the whole animal creation. The psalmist considered how the water, plants and animals of the earth each find their place in God's plan, order and economy. Even the wild donkeys drink their water. The birds have a home so they may sing among the branches as we read in verse 12. So beneath the beast of the field they have drink. But above verse 12, by them the birds of the heaven have their home, they sing among the branches. He saw a good harmonious world in nature and knew God was responsible for it. If God cares to provide water for the beasts of the wilderness, how much more would he care to provide the water of the Holy Spirit for us mankind? According to St. Augustine, who are the beasts of the field? They are the Gentiles. But God did not forsake them, but provided them with word of salvation. And the bird's voice is heard among the branches, the branches of the trees, which grow on the edge of the streams and the fountains in order to find water and drink. Having their dwelling among the branches of trees, birds, feeling protected by their Creator, express their gratitude to God by singing. 
So if even the irrational creation like birds and beasts that have not winning place give thank and praise to their creator, how much more it's befitting for us men to praise and glorify him. Verse 13 He waters the hills from his upper chamber through rain. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your works. So God actually satisfies the need of each single creature. As the hills are the source of rivers which irrigate the earth, so they are in turn watered themselves from God's chamber. You know, the snow on the mountains actually melts and, and comes down to form the rivers. Then it evaporates to be clouds and then the rain waters the mountains. So these chambers are the clouds which pour down rain impartially on all those surfaces which are not already moistened by the fountain or streams or lakes. So the whole earth, not merely just a few isolated areas, the whole earth is satisfied by water. All the needs of the earth seem to be met and satisfied. Nothing has been left undone in the valleys or on the hills or on the dry land or in the water that was needful to be done to carry out the purpose for which it has been called into being. The spiritual meaning of these verses is explained by St. Augustine as the direct and immediate teaching of the apostles of Christ himself. For example, in the vision of the sheet full of unclean animals that St. Peter saw in his vision and the conversion of St. Paul on the road to Damascus, so that the outpouring of the gospel, this rain teaching flowed down upon the plains below through the water courses of these great hills, watered the whole earth with the knowledge of the Lord. So the whole earth is satisfied with the knowledge of the Lord, producing a great harvest of converted sinners. Verse 14, He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the service of man, that he may bring forth food from the earth. Now the psalmist speaks of the results of God's careful arrangement and continued his thoughts on nature, seeing how God provides grass for animals and vegetation for the service of man. The earth has been made to produce the endless varieties of food required for the creatures that have been placed on it. We can find many, many varieties of food required for all the creatures that are living on earth. Not only food, but medicine, because in the grass we can find medicine. 
Some interpretation of verse 13 is that it means the spirit of liberality, which the reign of gospel grace causes to spring up in the hearts of the hearers of the world. So these vegetations like the spirit of freedom, so as to remind them to provide abundantly and cheerfully for the temporal means of their teachers. When the preachers preach the word of God, this like rain falls on our heart, so vegetation will grow, which means graces in the heart of uh, the hearers of the word of God. So this will provide cheerfully and abundantly to the temporal means of their teachers. St. John Chrysostom observed, It is true I see and I acknowledge. The fact is certain. The earth does bring forth grass for cattle and green herb for the service of men. But I see other cattle of the Lord, which are meant, which it is said, you shall not muzzle an ox while it trades out the grain. And the laborer is worthy of his wages. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or he says, says it altogether for our sake. For our sake, no doubt, this is written. So St. John Chrysostom said, who are the cattle here? And he referred to St. Paul in his letter to the Corinthians. When God spoke about oxen, God not speak about the oxen, but about the preacher of the world. And as God provides vegetation for the cattle, or grass for the cattle, also we need to provide for the preachers of the world. How then does the earth bring forth grass for cattle? The answer, because the Lord has intended that they who preach the gospel shall live of the gospel. Verse 15 And wine that makes glad the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread which strengthens man's heart. So here we have wine, oil, and bread. So God actually prepared the food suitable for man. And this consists of wine which gladdens his heart, oil which make his face shine or to give him a cheerful face, and bread which strengthens man's heart, which is the main sustenance of the entire body. It was the glory of the promised land to produce in abundance these three essentials. When God actually said to Israel, you will inherit the promised land, he told them the promised land abundantly will provide for these three essentials. By means of rain watering the earth, vine are caused to grow out of it, which produces wine that has such a benefit in it as to cheer the heart of man. Of this nature are the love of God and Christ, the blessing of grace and the Eucharist. So out of these vines, we have the wine which we use it in the Eucharist. Verse 16. 
And according to the scholar origin, the wine here refers to the grace of teaching that bring gladness to the heart of man. So not the literal wine, but the teaching that bring gladness to the heart of man. In the same way, the oil is the grace of the Spirit, which actually compared in the scripture, oil represents the Holy Spirit. Who is the wine that makes glad the heart of men and makes his face shine? But the Lord Jesus Christ who says, I am the true vine. So he is, Jesus is the true food and the true drink, bread and wine, Eucharist. Whoever enjoys his body and blood would be filled with the divine strength and gladness and the light of the sun of righteousness would shine on him. He is the bread which came down from heaven and yet was brought out of the earth once in nativity by his incarnation and again in the resurrection to be the spiritual food of man, the holy sacrament of his love where he is indeed the wine that makes glad the heart of man and bread which strengthens man's heart. And oil here is the Holy Spirit which God bestows upon us in the Mayron, in the sacrament of Christmas. Saint Ephraim the Syrian said, the bread that sustains the heart of man is keeping the commandments, while the wine that makes his heart glad is seeking the forgiveness and the oil is the repentance that purifies the soul and prepare the soul to have communion in the body and blood of the Lord. So according to Saint Ephraim, the bread is keeping God's commandment, wine is the forgiveness, oil is the repentance. Saint Jerome says although the material wine does not make the glad the heart of man, because people get drunk with the material wine, but may even bring forth foolishness to it. it. As it is written, it's not for the king to drink wine in Proverbs 31 verse 4. It is good neither to eat meat nor to drink wine by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak, as we read in Romans 14, 21. Yet, then what the wine means here? The kind of wine told here refers to the spiritual wine that makes man spiritually drunk. So from the grass, from the vegetation, from the vine, and from the bread, as adapted to sustain the living being upon the earth, the psalmist passes to the more distinguished and grand production of the vegetable world to those which display more manifestly the power of God. So after he spoke about the wine, the oil, the bread, the vegetation, then he spoke about the trees. In verse 16, the trees of the Lord are full of sap, the cedars of Lebanon which he planted. So the cedar of Lebanon was the grandest and best tree known to the Hebrew. 
Such trees as the psalmist feels must have been planted by the divine hand because man could grow herbs but not cedars. So we can grow herbs but God is the one who planted the cedars. And as a proof to the plentiful provision made by the Creator, the psalmist states that even these great trees have enough. When he said, the trees of the world are full of sap, means they have enough, they are satisfied, the cedars of Lebanon which he planted. So even the cedars of Lebanon, an open forest, though they are high and bulky and require a great deal of sap to feed them, but they have enough from the earth. They are trees which God has planted and which therefore he will protect and provide for. They drink in sufficiently God's rain, so the rain that comes from heaven satisfies them so that they may grow up and flourish amazingly. We may apply this verse to the trees of righteousness which are planted by the Lord. These are full of sap for what God plants he will water. As we read in Psalm 92 verse 13, those who are planted in the house of the Lord flourish in the courts of our Lord. In verse 12 of this psalm, the birds are introduced as they sing among the branches of the trees, and shrubs by the water courses. And also in verse 17, the birds are introduced as having their home in the grand exalted cedars in places which God had made for them. Verse 17, which will be the last verse of our Bible study tonight, where the birds make their nests, the stork has her home in the fir trees. So in verse 12, he mentions that the birds are singing among the branches. In verse 17, he is saying the birds having their home in the grand exalted cedars in places which God had made for them. So the cedar tree may refer to the righteous who embraces the poor in spirit and the weak, the birds. So the birds that live in the branches of the cedar are the poor and weak in the spirit whom actually the righteous empower and embrace them. They are supported and are fed from their superfluous spiritual riches. So the weak are supported and fed from the, the superfluous spiritual riches. The stork in verse 17 used to represent the larger class of birds. Larger class of birds. The stork has her home in the fir trees. This will be the end of our Bible study tonight. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.